Thank you, Nathan. Uh, always a treat to be back <clears throat> in our home church. Uh, I travel a lot these days to various locations for work and doing other things, but neat to have uh, Tim and Peggy Castagna, those of you that are under the age of 35. Uh, I hope you understand the legacy of this church. There is no church like this that I have found anywhere on the earth. Uh, the amount of churches that have been planted, if you flip in your program and you see sister churches, all of those sister churches speak a different language. Uh, most of them don't even speak gateway languages, Mandarin, Bahasa, Farsi, Spanish, Urdu. Uh, they speak minority languages, and that's the legacy of this church. And to, to know that, I think uh, Tim and Peggy kind of bring that back to the fore. So it's always a privilege to represent kind of the missionaries that went out from this church and to open God's word. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. We are going to look at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Most theologians will say that Romans chapter 8 is the pinnacle of the entire Bible. If you're looking for the apex, it's Romans. And then if you're looking for the apex of the apex, you're looking at Romans chapter 8. And then from Romans chapter 8, it kind of starts to get into some of the practical ways that we live out our faith. Romans 9 how salvation comes from God. No man saves himself. It's only by the grace of God. Romans 10 starts getting into Paul's love for the Jews, but why the Jews turn their back on the gospel. And then there's that wonderful spot in Romans chapter 10, 13 through 15, how the gospel goes to places and to peoples who have never heard the gospel before. He's talking about missions there. It's the most powerful missions passage apart from the Great Commission that we have in Scripture. And then we get into Romans chapter 11, how the Gentiles are grafted in to the original tree to the people of God. Remember the Jews looked at the Jews and everybody else who wasn't a Jew was called a Gentile. So that's all other peoples, all other races, but how we're grafted in, how we're sons and daughters of Abraham, not by blood, but by belief. And then we finally get into Romans chapter 12 and where Kenny opened it up last week and this very specific phrase, the transformation of our minds. How are our minds transformed once we are Christ followers, once we understand that we're saved from our sins. And so Rome, the rest of 12 and then chapter 13 and chapter 14 kind of play out, how does that transformation take place? How does someone who claims to be a Christian, how are their lives supposed to be marked? How are they supposed to live in this world? Surely they're not supposed to look exactly like they were pre-gospel, there's a different way about them. There's a different set of values. There's a, a different north star, so to speak, in their life. And so that's what we're getting into today is starting to flesh out some of that nitty-gritty of, okay, now that you understand the gospel, how are you to live? So in our passage today, let me read the passage. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. Uh, we're going to read verses 3 through 8. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8 says this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we all have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. So we look at this passage, and this passage naturally breaks into three different chunks. So this talk is going to have three main headings, and then there's going to be some subheadings under there. If you're taking notes, uh, the three headings are going to kind of lead us into specific areas. But one and two, heading number one and heading number two, build towards number three. Number three is what we pull from the understanding of number one and two. So if you're taking notes, the first heading is know yourself. Know yourself yourself. Paul gives his credentials for asking such a question by the grace given to me. Paul was a big A apostle. He was an apostle just like the other 12 apostles. Remember, you had 11 apostles because Judas dropped off the map, and then we had Matthias join back in. So he's one of the 12, and then Paul's known as the apostle to the Gentiles. You have 13 big A apostles. Little A apostles, we call those missionaries today. Missionaries who go and take the gospel where it hasn't been before. Apostle in Greek means sent one. And so there's little A apostles, but then there's big A apostles who are known as the foundation of the church. And so Paul asked this question, think of yourselves sober-mindedly. Think of yourselves in light of the gospel. This isn't supposed to be a review of kind of your health, your emotions, how you're doing in life. You're not supposed to be thinking of it in that way. You're supposed to think of yourself as a Christian who reflects on the grace that has been given to you by God. If you're taking notes, it says Christians, especially Christians that have grown in their faith, should be marked by an attitude of humility. Christians, especially mature Christians, should have the aroma of humility about them. They know who they used to be, and by God's grace, look at the progress that has been made. They have a humble way about them. When I was in college, uh, there was this guy who came through and he challenged all of us young men to go with him to Donovan State Prison, which is a little bit further south from here. And I remember going and I, I didn't want to go to the maximum security area. That was like a little too far off of my grid. But I didn't want to go to the minimum security. That's where they like play tennis and backgammon and all that stuff. I wanted to go to like the, the medium security. Like that's kind of, I'm good with those guys. And so went to medium security and started going a few times to uh, help this guy as he would teach the Bible to these prisoners. And I remember one of the shocking things that kind of came out of my time of going to Donovan was everybody listened really well. If you were there, you were pretty clear-headed about your station in life. Like just by the very fact that you were sitting in that room, there was kind of a well-known story that followed you. And the humility that these guys had to listen to this guy. And he wasn't a gifted teacher, but he was bringing the word. And they didn't have much more people that were going to come and teach them. Christians should know where they came from the most clear of all people. That's your backstory. And based on that, this attitude of humility should shape us. We should know our story well. And then we should also 
remember that all things, we think of ourselves humbly, not just because of our gospel, but because of the physical things that have blessed our lives. Do you realize that you could have been born into another country, into another century, into a different language? Those of you that have traveled and not gone to Western Europe, but have gone to some of the off the beaten path places, know that your life could have been radically different, but for the grace of God. You had no potential hope of going to college. You couldn't have gotten a high school education. You would be lucky not to do the occupation that your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather have done for generations. But God in his grace somehow allowed you to grow up here, to go to college here, to have the opportunities that you have here. Everything you have, everything that you wear, everything that you drive, every gift, this isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You had nothing to do with any of that. This should give you an attitude of humility. And we look at these two ways of thinking, the way of the world and the way of the people of God. There's this famous theologian, his name is Augustine, Augustine of Hippo. He was an Algerian. He's one of the most famous uh, theologians in the history of Christianity, probably was the most famous all the way up until the 16th century. And Augustine of Hippo wrote this famous work called The City of God. As the Visigoths, the German tribes, are coming in and they're starting to destroy the Roman Empire and they're tearing it apart piece by piece. And he's seeing the crumbling of thousands of years of history and the Romans are starting to just disintegrate and their way of life and the, what they have built upon from the Greeks and the Visigoths are just, they're, they're ripping the world apart. He writes this book called The City of God to call Christians back to what's eternal. The city of God, and he would frequently compare it, the city of God and the city of man. And Augustine says this, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in self, the latter in the Lord. Christians are called to assess themselves, evaluate yourself, think of yourself, but where, do your, where does your heart lie? Where does your passion go to? Is it for the city of God? Is it for the things of our God? Or is it for the things of self? One of the things that we teach the radius students, as Nathan said, I lead that program. We have campuses down in Tijuana. If you speak English, if you speak Mandarin, it's in Taizhong, Taiwan, or in Cambodia. We have another one coming to India. We train missionaries that take the gospel to the farthest places on the face of the earth. And one of the things we teach our students is how to make friends with people as you're learning a language for the first time. You know what the number one most important topic that people love to talk about the world over? themselves, hands down. If you learn to be a good question asker, you can have a conversation with anybody, as long as you care about somebody else more than you care about yourself. The dominant topic that everybody likes to talk about, regardless of skin color, regardless of sex, regardless of country, regardless of language, self. Christians should be the exception to that rule. We think of others. We think of ourselves sober-mindedly, this is what you have on your outline. The key is to think of oneself sober-mindedly. Think of oneself sober-mindedly. If someone thinks of themselves too lowly, 
that pushes them to unhealthy introspection or loathing or even depression. This is the same ditch of pride. It just manifests itself in a different way. If somebody thinks of themselves too highly, then it leads to another form of pride. But Christians are supposed to evaluate themselves sober-mindedly, thinking clearly of yourself. One of the best books on this topic, hands down, is from Timothy Keller. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If you can buy that book, if you don't have money to buy that book, you're a college student struggling, talk to me afterwards, I will buy you a copy of that book. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's only about 50 pages long. It'll take you two hours max if you're an average reader to read the book. But one of the central tenets in this book is this quote, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Not to think too highly, not to think too lowly, two branches of pride, it's thinking of myself less. And as Christians, we're called to sober-mindedly evaluate who we are by God's grace, everything I have, from the clothes on my back to the salvation that I have been granted, none of it comes from myself. Know yourself. And the number two major heading is know your family. Know your family. It says this in the text, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are all saved from our sins individually. You are saved as an individual. You weren't saved because your parents took you and baptized you when you were a three-month-old or three-week-old or 30-year-old. You're not saved by what your parents did. You're never saved as families. You're saved as an individual. You understand the gospel as an individual. But as it has in the little thing that you're filling in here, we're saved individually, but we are saved into community, into family. You're never meant to remain alone if you're a Christian. That's a modern idea. That's a very American idea. That we're individuals and we just kind of do our things and then we gather once in a while on Sundays. No, no, no. That's a false interpretation of the gospel. You're saved individually, but you're saved into community. One of the things that Christians tend to forget is that we have a family celebration every time somebody understands the gospel clearly. We have a celebration that we do, and this is the family celebration where we get together to welcome a new member in. What do we call that celebration? Baptism. It's called baptism. Those of you that don't know, we, we celebrate. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism marks that you're now a member of the family. Then we have a family meal together on a regular basis, and that family meal helps us remember the most important thing about who we are, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do we call that meal? Communion. And then we have a regular getting together of the family where all the family members are present. What do we call that? That's church on Sunday. That's why we gather here on Sunday, because you're a member of the family. And if you're not a member of the family, you kind of come to the outside, but you don't eat the family meal. You haven't gone through the ceremony where we kind of welcome a new member in, and you're not part of this gathering. It doesn't make sense to you. There are aspects of this that just, I'm not really getting this. But as you start to understand more and more, you realize this group, this gathered group, this family, we call it the church. The church is this regular gathering 
that sees its identity that supersedes all other identities. When we were in Yembe Yembe, some of you guys know that my wife and I served over in Papua New Guinea for 13 years, and we moved in among this people group called the Yembe Yembes. I know it's a really weird name. You just say Yembe twice. That's it. And we moved in among them, and the Yembes had four clans. They had the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're four birds. And so they, the whole clan, the whole tribe, all close to 5,000 members were all descended from four brothers. So each brother had a totem. So when we moved in, they wanted us to be adopted into these clans. And so they looked at me, I'm kind of tall, I've got a little bit of a crooked nose from playing college basketball, and they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan. My wife's got long blonde hair, they put her in the eagle clan. They all put us in clans depending on our physical attributes. And then when we started teaching the gospel, it took us two and a half years to learn their, their language clearly enough to where we could share the gospel clearly. And then we started teaching through Genesis, got to Matthew, got to Mark, and they, we had about 45 to 50 Christians. And how those Christians lived and died drew more and more people to the church. And what we started to realize was right when we started to preach and we started to get into the book of Acts, their understanding of their clan identities, ostrich clan, black cockatoos, eagle clan, all were subservient to the clan that supersedes all other clans. The clan of those who understood the gospel. Because that's the church, that's the nature of the church. Just like a regular family, we have family members that are a little bit awkward. We have some uncles that maybe say things that we wouldn't say. We have some aunts that make weird jokes. We have cousins that, yeah, but they're still members of the family. Cults, and you've got this on your outline, cults tend to produce people who look the same, dress the same, and end up homogenizing even to the point of destruction. The Christian body is made up of many parts, but all held together organically. Listen to the words of Paul as he wrote to the Corinthians who were struggling with this idea and getting prideful over who they were in the church. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This was the great discovery of the Protestant Reformation. Those of you that know your church history, you've heard of this guy named Martin Luther and he nailed 95 questions to a door. One of the great discoveries that came out of the Protestant Reformation, which every one of you in here probably wouldn't have heard the gospel apart from what happened in the Protestant Reformation. One of the great discoveries was the guy who, streets, who sweeps the street, who does our coffee out there, the guy who is the blacksmith, the guy who is a pastor, preacher, they're all the same. They're all members of the same body. According to the eyes of God, everyone has their role, but they're all not the same in their function, but they're the same in equality. This brought a great leveling. There used to be this high caste, this priestly caste. Christianity knows nothing of the caste system. 
The body was designed to have all of its members together. That's why there is such a great tragedy when people don't attend church on Sunday. The body needs you. There is no such thing as a part-time liver. If you have a part-time liver, you know what we call that person? Dead. <laughs> person doesn't survive. The body doesn't make it with part-time members. If you're a member of the body, you're all in or you're all out. But if you call yourself a Christian, you belong to a unit. You belong to a whole. You belong to the church. We're one. And we're one because of the work of Jesus Christ. If you have this on your outline, we only have meaning, life, or import as we are related to the head. As we're related to Jesus Christ, that's the only way we have importance. It's the only way we have meaning in life. Oh man, this is a whole sermon on people chasing after meaning in this world. We find meaning as we're related to Christ. Those who understand this are called Christians. It's because of Christ's work on the cross that we're united across blood, language, gender, race, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, Padre fans, Dodger fans. We find our value in the head, in Jesus Christ. But keep this central, it's not believing in Jesus or believing on Jesus. I get really nervous, especially when kids start using this terminology. Well, I believed on Jesus or I believe in Jesus. That's shorthand for something, but can they explicate the shorthand? The truth is, you have to believe the truth about Jesus. And this is the truth. We were sinners separated from God before we were even born, without hope and without recourse. But as the Bible says, at just the right time, a little less than 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus, who died in our place. And what is known as this term, it sounds really fancy, it's called duplex gratia in Latin, this double grace. There's something that is exchanged. Number one, what is mine my sin, my Adamness, my inclination to evil were given to Christ. And what was his, his righteousness, his perfection in God's eyes was given to me. When someone understands that truth about Jesus, they are saved from their sins. They now have a relationship to the head. Now they've been brought into the family of God, transferred from the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of darkness. Christianity is not let go and let God. It's not some Christian version of Jesus take the wheel, blind faith. Christianity is an engagement of your mind, your reasoning skills, to look at the historic Jesus, who he claimed to be, and evaluating against what we see this world. And the three questions that Jesus answers, the three eternal questions that are all through every language, every culture, every place. What are the three questions? You should know these by heart. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Those are your three questions. Doesn't matter where you're from in this world. Where did I come from? Everybody has answers to these questions and it's the Christian's job to bring the answers of Jesus into conflict. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Jesus answers all those questions and he brings us into community. He brings us into family. And then number three, know your role in the family. Know your role. 
So you're assessing yourself sober-mindedly. You're understanding who I am, how I am saved by nothing that I have done, how everything I have, every zip code that I have, the education that I have, the car that I drive, everything that I am as a human being is a gift from God. And then I know that the, the church is pretty central, like I'm saved into the church. I'm not saved by the church, but I'm saved into a body of people. If I see myself as a lone ranger, I am historically and biblically outside the norm. I'm saved into community. So what am I to do about that? Well, I have a role. Every one of you, once you are a Christian, you have a role. You have a job within the family of God. And these jobs are generally called gifts. And so we see gifts popping up here and there, mostly in 1 Corinthians and mostly in Romans. And so we're going to look at the, the listing of gifts that is the latest gifting of, listing of gifts. And those gifts are broken into three categories. You have this on your outline. The sign gifts... The speaking gifts and the service gifts or the serving gifts. So three categories of gifts. And let me just give you a really quick rundown of this. We'll go over the seven gifts that he talks about here and we'll be done. So the sign gifts. In the early days of Christianity, primarily in the first and second century, there was no way to judge the truthfulness about what someone taught about Jesus. If someone claimed to be an apostle, if someone said, this is true, Jesus said this, or this is true, God said this. You know how they authenticated it before they had Bibles? Well, someone had a sign gift. Someone could speak in tongues. Someone would heal someone from sickness, from death. The signs would accompany the apostles. That was what we were promised, is that there would be signs that would accompany these guys, and we would know that they're really apostles. So what they say is true. So those sign gifts authenticated the apostles before we had the Bible. John MacArthur, in probably the best book that I have read on the sign gifts, if you're reading books and you're a book reader, Strange Fire is probably the best book on giftings or the sign gifts. And he gets into the history of this because this is a recent phenomenon to go back to the sign gifts once, once they expired, that's a 200-year history. That's not very long in the history of Christianity. But he says in Strange Fire, the sign gifts authenticated the teaching of the apostles, which was the measure of all other teaching, and therefore ceased after the apostles died. The sign gifts belonged to a unique era in the church's life and would have no permanent place in its ongoing ministry. Once we had the completed canon, canon's a really... Uh, it's just shorthand for the completed Bible. So you've got the 39 books of the Old Testament, you've got 27 books of the New Testament, joined together 66 books of the Bible, now we've got the completed scriptures. There was no more need for the signed gifts. And we see this kind of clearly in 1 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. If you look at the lists of giftings there, Paul lists the signed gifts, but then six years later he writes the book of Romans. This passage, which we're about to get into, Romans 12, there's not one sign gift. Six years have transpired and the sign gifts have started to fade off. That's the contention of most church historians. And so you got the sign gifts, which are for a unique period of time. Then you got the speaking gifts. God has chosen throughout history to use men who spoke from him, either directly, as we see in the Old Testament. We call those prophets. So if you see a prophet in the Old Testament, he hears from God, he says, watch out, Babylon's about to come in and kick your guys' teeth in because you're not following God. Listen to him, Amos, Elijah, Obadiah, these are famous prophets. In the New Testament, the gift of prophecy, men still speak from God, but they speak from his word. We call those preachers. Prophets, Old Testament, 
preachers, New Testament. Prophets, preachers, gift of prophecy, still speaking from God, but not getting audible things from God like the Old Testament. They're reading their Bibles, they're studying it. We're about to get into this when we talk about the specific gifts. So the speaking gifts, and then the serving gifts, the gifts of service. And if you look at the gifts that we're going to get into today, five of them are serving gifts. Two of them are speaking gifts. This is the proportion that the church needs generally. We need people with serving gifts. So let's look at these really quickly. And remember, when we look at these, that there is a lot of overlap between these various giftings. There's a lot of overlap, and there's also not, don't think of, okay, I have the gift of mercy, or I have the gift of teaching, and I have none others. No, no, no. We all have about three or four, maybe more, of these gifts, but we don't maybe have them in a 100% proportion. We have maybe 90% of one, 2% of another, and we're called to encourage those things, to grow in the gifts that maybe we aren't as strong in. So number one, we're going to do the two speaking gifts, and then we'll do the five serving gifts. Number one is the gift of prophecy. So prophecy comes in two flavors. One, as we've already talked about, is foretelling, telling what God has told you. Okay, God told me this. You're going to foretell this knowledge. Uh, that's primarily seen in the Old Testament. And forth-telling. Okay, this is what we understand from the Bible. Let's tell that truth out to other people. Uh, that's the teaching of God's word. This is what this second category is bending towards. It's the preaching of God's word. What do we call people who have the gift of prophecy? We call them preachers. Preachers who preach the word of God. Romans 10:14 says this, "How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them?" Preachers preach the word of God. And here's the primary difference. We're about to get into teachers, and everybody always is confused about what's the difference between preachers and teachers. You know what the primary difference is? Preachers preach the Bible, and then they apply it to us in our circumstances today. They tell us how to live. They tell us how this makes an impact on our life today. In 2023, in San Diego, California, how does this change the way we live? Teachers teach the Bible, but their application is generally not there or they're not applying it. These teachers are fabulous for seminaries, Bible schools, that kind of, but that's your primary difference is the application principle. Preaching in proportion. So how does this apply to the church? The first thing I'd say about this is if you want to preach, if you think you have the gift of preaching, try it on other groups before you try it on the whole body. You know what? I teach, uh, I teach a lot of different places around the country and a lot of different locations. You know where my favorite place to preach is? to the kindergartner through fifth group that happens down there. Every fourth Sunday, I get to teach to those guys down there. And let me tell you, if you think you have the gift of preaching, preach to kids. Kids haven't learned to lie yet like adults. Adults lie really well. We lie with a straight face. We tell people, that was awesome. And then you go and sit in the car with your husband, oh, that was horrible. Kids tell the truth. And you know how they tell the truth? They fall asleep or they start talking while you're preaching. If you think you have the gift of preaching, preach to kids. One of the things that we do in Yembi Yembi, the church that we established over there, if you want to preach to the congregation, you preach to the kids for one year first, for an entire year. If the kids don't want to listen to you, who wants to put you up in front of adults? Preach to other gatherers. If you can't preach here, if there's not a group that you feel comfortable, gather your neighbors. Gather the people that you work with. Gather some people that you know well enough and teach them the Bible. 
And from that, you'll grow. And then the second aspect of this is if you want to be a preacher, invite input into your life. Invite input. I find that those who want to preach the Bible tend to have the thinnest skin. You know, if you want to preach, invite people into your life to let you know. Don't be the last one to know that you're a bad preacher. Invite people in. Let them speak into your life. Praise God for preachers who build up the church. Praise God for Kenny building up the church by helping us to understand God's word and apply it to our lives. Number two of the speaking gifts, the gift of teaching. And again, we're talking about the speaking gifts. This is the word that we have in Greek called didaxon. It's the word in the English or that we get from English called didactic. And didactic, according to the Webster's Dictionary, is intended to teach rather than to entertain. When somebody teaches... They're trying to get some information across. They're not trying to entertain you. They're not trying to make this a, whoo, here come the balls and the rings and all that. They're, they're trying to get some information across to you. They, they're didactic in their teaching style. All preachers have the gift of teaching, but not all teachers have the gift of preaching. This is why so many churches flounder, because you have good Bible teachers. They know their Bible. They know the Greek. They know the Hebrew, but they don't know how to preach. There's a difference between these two gifts. How would this look in the church? Elders are called to be teachers. They need to know how to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict the faith. Good teachers are needed as elders and leaders within the church. Praise God for teachers who help us know and understand our Bibles and how to stay away from bad doctrine. And then to the gifts of service. Uh, Number one, or the gifts of serving, is the gift of service. It's kind of intentionally broad to serve the church and skills and abilities that you have been given, to serve your fellow church members in a way that builds up the body. To name a few that come to mind, and just, I mean, if you look at our building, if you look at what happened about an hour ago out there on the patio, if you look and you understand the way that this church works, Look at the ministries that happen in sounds. You only have to turn around and look back there. Carpentry, security, childcare, music. The gift of service is quite broad. If you have the gift of service, though here's the big thing, are you exercising it? These gifts are like muscles. If you don't exercise them, they atrophy. But the more you exercise them, the more you're involved, the stronger they grow. Do you have the gift of service? Some of you, most likely a large portion of you have that. Are you using it for the betterment of the family? Or is that gift just remaining with you, stagnating within you? Praise God for those who serve and make the church beautiful, safe, clear, and helpful to Christians and non-Christians alike. Then the gift of exhortation. This is the gift where it has two words in Greek. It's para and kaleo. Literally, to come alongside one, to kaleo with them. The Holy Spirit in Greek is known as the paraklete, the advocate, the comforter, the helper. Remember the Holy Spirit, the shy member of the Trinity is what theologians call him, the one who comes in place of Christ and resides within our hearts. This is the gift of exhortation, those who come along and through the Holy Spirit exhort and encourage Someone who prays with someone, either formally, you guys know that we have people that pray with church members and those who come on Sundays, but those who come alongside those who are weary, who are going through heavy trials, someone who exhorts a young man who's struggling with lusts, uh, 
a young woman who's struggling with anger, who's struggling with depression or fear. Praise God for those who exhort. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is the gift of exhortation. You're encouraging them along this path. You're helping them as they're walking this road. Those who exhort in the church bring much care, kindness, and grace to the family they're a part of. Praise God for exhorters. And then the gift of giving or contributing. Paul says that those who have this gift are to give in generosity. This is not meant to be exclusively about your possessions. Everybody always gets nervous. Oh, you're talking about money. No, we're not. You know what's more valuable to Southern Californians than money? Their time. Their time. Are you a giver of your time? You know one of the things? I love that Kenny does this, and I love what happens between the two services out here, but when we finish up, we usually say some version of, turn around and meet someone that you've never talked to. And then it's the obligatory three questions. My name is Brooks. How are you? I'm good. See ya. I'm gone to Luce, or I'm taken off to a restaurant. Do we have enough time for each other? Some of you need to grow in the grace of generosity, and we're not talking about money. We're talking about your time. Do you care enough about your family members to get to know them? Do you love them enough to hear something other than off, quick, little one-liners? Do we dive deeply into each other's lives? If we are a family, would you want a family that loves you that much? How much would you like to be loved? The gift of giving and contributing. Those who give them themselves give their energy and bless the church by making it a better place for all who come. And then this is on your outline, the gift of leadership. In other spots in the Bible, it's called the gift of administration. The gift of leadership or administration. The basic meaning of this gift in the original Greek was to stand before others, to lead in particular ways. We see this gift in the church play out in various ways. Sometimes it's in those who help us build buildings. Praise God for those who, the elders and the deacons on the church that build a budget that actually balances. I've seen churches that have wonderful preachers and horrible leaders. They spend themselves into a black hole. This building's gone. There's an Apple store that's going up here in about three years because we didn't have any leaders. We had nobody who built a budget. We don't have people who help us with the men's and women's programs. All those, Nina, my wife, goes to the women's, where they have like women's tea or whatever. They decorate the tar out of these tables. And the, the men who bring and organize the men's gatherings. Praise God for leaders. Things don't get done unless we have leaders. Buildings don't get remodeled. Churches flounder. Buildings fail. Programs never get implemented or updated without the church having leaders. Praise God for good leadership in the church. And then finally, the gift of mercy. Oh, man. The gift of mercy in the church. Now, exhortation and mercy, most people don't know the difference between these two. The gift of exhortation. So if you think of a marathon, and people are running along in a marathon, and they're still a little ways away, those who are the exhorters are the ones who come alongside them and say, keep going, you've only got six miles left. Keep going, you're almost there. They give them a cup of water. They help them get to the finish line. The ones who have the gift of mercy... They're staying behind with those who rolled their ankle, who are dehydrated, who are never going to finish the race. They're the ones who show up at hospital beds 
when the final hours are coming. They're the ones who will comfort you as you weep because the doctor says it's stage four. Those are the people who have the gift of mercy. I've been around people who don't have the gift of mercy, and in those hours, I don't want to hear, well, Jesus is coming back. I know he is, but I still got to cry. I still got to go through those deep waters. We need the gift of mercy. We need the gift of exhortation. We need to keep plowing on. We need to keep pressing on towards the goal to the end of our days. But we need those who will strengthen us in our dark hours. Praise God for those who have the gift of mercy. Those who give mercy make the church a kind, healing, and welcoming place. They make others want to be here because they know they will receive love. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, again, wonderful author, please read John Owen. He says this, spiritual gifts are that without which the church cannot subsist in the world, nor can believers be useful to one another or the rest of mankind to the glory of Christ as they ought to be. They are the powers of the world to come those effectual operations of the power of Christ whereby his kingdom was erected and is preserved. The gifts that we have been given for the betterment of the church, not us as individuals, for the betterment of the church are the powers of the world to come. When we show grace, when we show mercy, when we exhort people on, when we teach from the knowledge that we have of the scriptures, this is the world to come. We're teaching by the power of Christ. We're loving, we're showing mercy by the power of Christ. So how do we apply this whole passage to ourselves? Three ways. We evaluate ourselves. We don't think too much or too little, but we sober-mindedly evaluate how God has equipped and blessed us. We're sober-minded, we're clear-minded. Christians above all should be able to review themselves, look at themselves incisively, know themselves. Number two, we remember that we're saved into community. If you're a Christian, you're not a free agent. You gave that up when Christ became your head. You're a member of a family. Because of that, we live as a unit, as a congregation, as a church. And then finally, we use our gifts that have been given to us by God to help build up the church. We don't focus on our gifts, we focus on our God. As we focus on our God, we focus on building up that which is his, his body, his church. Christians live out these truths to the honor of God to the end of our days or until our king returns. But we have a king. He is the head of the body known the church over. And we have gifts that serve each other on a regular basis. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It teaches us It shapes us, it molds us, it gives us a clear vision for how we are to live in this world as Christians. Thank you that we are saved from our sins. And we're not saved by anything that we've done. We're not saved because of who we are. We're not saved because of what our parents did. We are saved by your son and by the grace in understanding the truth about him. But Father, we're saved into community. We're members of a family. Lord, we're called to exercise the gifts that you have given us to the betterment of that family. May we be faithfully about that. May we not hoard these things to ourselves. May they not atrophy because we don't use them. May we be members that care more about the family than we care about ourselves. Thank you 
for your kindness to us in all things that you have given us, things that we see, things that we know, and things that we don't see. May we live faithfully in these truths to the end of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.